Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Tarek El Sherif, founder and CEO of Zinobe, a Colombian fintech specialized in online lending. Founded in 2012, Zinobe operates in Colombia and uses technology to develop online credit products for the consumer and small business sectors. Zinobe has developed a data-centric credit model to help target underserved markets in Colombia. In 2020, Zinobe was the highest-ranked Colombian company in the FT's fast-growing companies ranking with a compound annual growth rate of more than 100%. Prior to Zinobe, Tarek spent over seven years working in investment banking split between New York and London at companies like Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan. He holds an MBA from Columbia University and a Bachelor of Science in Finance from Northeastern University. He currently lives in Bogota with his wife and two daughters. And now let's listen to an enlightening and entertaining conversation with Tarek El Sherif. All right, Tarek. Well, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech podcast. How about we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Okay, well, no, thank you very much. Uh, no, glad to be here. Um, my background. So on, on the personal side, I am kind of a, a mixed bag. It's, uh, you know, always when I get asked where I'm from, it's more complicated than usual. It's hard for me to, you know, put it into, into one place. So I was born in New York, but I stayed there just for a couple of years. My parents then moved to London, which is where I grew up kind of in more of my formative years. And then I went back to the US for university, then my first job and business school, and then after business school, back to London, where I worked uh, for a few years before starting uh, Zenobi. So my career has been in investment banking. I've done both sides. So in New York, uh, I was working on the coverage side, advisory. And then I moved after business school to the sales and trading side, working with corporates on hedging and structured products. That makes sense. So tell us about the early days or even before the early days of uh, Zenobe. How did the idea come about? How did you approach the very beginning? So when I decided to leave uh, banking, it was post-crisis and I was I could have stayed I and mean, I was protected. I was working in emerging markets uh, coverage uh, and I was in uh, Deutsche Bank at the time. And Deutsche, I think, got hit a, a few years after the crisis. So I, I wasn't really in danger there. But I think I'd gotten to the point where I wanted to get rid of the bureaucracy and kind of change careers. And entrepreneurship was something that I, I thought was an eventuality for me. My, my family was uh, always were, were business owners. So I, I had that in my mind for a while. Just as I was leaving London, I was talking with a couple of friends there and they were starting a, an FX startup. So London has a lot of those because of the kind of it's the FX capital of the world because of the time zones. And uh, I was telling them, yes, I'm excited to join, but I'm going to LATAM. So can we, you know, maybe I can work with you there and do and, and get clients uh, uh, from LATAM for you. So that, that was the idea as I was leaving. Once I got here... Then I got to kind of expose the first introduction to, you know, going into a more regulated bureaucratic market that, you know, scaling across Europe and FX was uh, plausible, you know, you know, headquartered in London, but doing anything in Colombia was not viable. So I tried that for a few months and then I told the guys, listen, you know, I'd rather, you know, invest in something that I'm going to be working on. So, you know, I'll just give you back my shares at par. 
And then one of the one of the partners told me, you know, why don't you look at this? You know, they sent me a couple of companies that were doing this uh, data driven lending. So one in the States, one in Europe. And I looked at it and it kind of uh, was appealing from the very beginning. So I'd never worked on anything on the consumer side. Everything was corporate, but kind of the automation, the user experience, kind of the speed of service in some of these data-driven lenders, it was new to the market, very appealing for me. So uh, I did a kind of a legal due diligence, studied the market. And what I found was that it was even more appealing in emerging markets because you're not only selling that improved user experience, lack of bureaucracy, but you're taking advantage of the lack of inclusion. So by having this data-driven approach on the credit, you could start assessing a risk differently, and then you could start giving credit to people that didn't have access uh, previously. So I was very, very excited uh, analyzing the market and the dynamics, and that's how it got going. So it was kind of a referral from a friend who, who I had been working with. And just a funny uh, anecdote, that company last year just closed the investment from Santander at, I think, nearly $800 million. So I should have kept the shares, but uh, <laughs> in the end, I had to make my own way. <laughs> well, not to have your own shares. Yes, yes. And, and what year was this? What year did you launch? The kind of the legal setup and the, all the due diligence was done in 2011. Operationally, we started in 2012. So in June 2012 was the official launch. Got it. And that, that's very interesting because that is way before this current wave that we're experiencing of entrepreneurship in LATAM, particularly fintech, did you get any resistance from your initial backers or the initial people that you pitched this to? No, I mean, initially it was just uh, from my network. So it was either people from JP Morgan, where I worked in New York, Deutsche, and my business school. So I was able to get kind of that uh, initial kind of angel round in just a couple of weeks. It was just kind of more on uh, my relationship and the trust they had with me. So that was quick, but there was a lot of resistance in the market. So just opening bank accounts, getting just general service, receiving the money that uh, these angel investors were sending me took a lot of persuading. It was very kind of uh, you know confusing for me how difficult that was. And then resistance in the market. So there's a lack of trust uh, here. The, there were a lot of kind of fraudulent pyramid schemes which had come up a few years before. So people were suspicious of uh, new models. And despite the fact that I had no upfront cost, I wasn't asking for anything, I was giving money out. The trust was uh, my burden. <laughs> uh, people were suspicious of what we were doing. So I remember there was a very funny anecdote uh, in Facebook that somebody was saying like, okay, I just applied. I think it's a joke. This is a fraud. It's a pyramid, even though they haven't sent us anything. And then when they got the money, they said, I can't believe it's true. You know, thank you for trusting me. Uh, so we had a few of those in social media that we were monitoring at, at the early days, which were uh, quite funny to look back on. Wow. They were probably checking if the money was real. Yeah, yeah, because I think uh, yeah, here there's just excessive paperwork and the credit landscape is it's mainly secured. So on the consumer side, it's uh, what's called Libranza, which is a payroll loan. And that's confined to kind of government and pensioners. Everyone's attacking the same client base. And then for small businesses, it's factoring. So unsecured credit analysis was uh, fairly virgin territory here. And, and uh, people weren't used to people you know, putting their money where their mouth is as far as assessing risk and taking uh, a bet on their uh, analytical capabilities. And how about building the product and the technology? Did you rely on, on local talent? Yeah, I was very, very lucky. So... A friend of my wife, uh, I think I mentioned my wife is Colombian, was, uh, had a software development company. So I hired them initially, so I had the trust factor. And we got along very well. And then one of his programmers who'd worked in our project left his company. 
And then he recommended that I hire him from his uh, new company and that he could become my first programmer. And he became my CTO. And I mean, the luck was, you know, having the friend of my wife and then this first hire who was amazing, who could, who allowed us not to hire other programmers for, you know, nearly two years that he kind of built the majority of the platform very versatile. And he's grown into the CTO role where he's managing now, you know, close to 40 people and has continued to do uh, a very good job as he stepped back from programming and now into management, uh, which, you know, it's, it's very hard to predict who's, who's going to be good at that. And I think the skill that I had, you know, in any of the hires is maybe I felt confident in my uh, assessment of talent and what I was looking for, especially for this type of venture. Uh, I had a lot of holes, let's say, on the marketing side, on the programming side that uh, I didn't have very much experience on. But uh, maybe, you know, I was good at spotting people who are exaggerating or not very uh, uh, not very good. And then I had a few filters which are good, you know, maybe because my Spanish is not the best. I didn't like to do it. I like people who spoke English. I like people who, who traveled or studied abroad because I wanted that perspective that you went abroad, you saw, you know, kind of a different landscape. So you didn't accept the status quo. And uh, I think in markets like Colombia, where you have kind of the same families owning everything and not much change, it was a closed economy for a while. People who were exposed to, to different places had that uh, inspiration, had that uh, belief that things are possible, things could change. The other people thought, you know, it's going to be the same old people and the same companies, the same products and services in the market. Now, take us also through the, the customer. I imagine this is almost a decade ago since you launched. I imagine your customer has also evolved with the company. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, we learned very quickly that on the consumer side and, and credit in general, I mean, it's all about retention. You know, you make your best guess uh, in, in assessing the first customer. And then uh, once you've made that guess, the best information you have are kind of the behavior they have with you. So we have, you know, started with kind of smaller amounts, short to maturity. We've on the credit side, and then we've started expanding, giving uh, longer loans, larger loans, and then using our kind of cash management capabilities that we develop, you know, developing the platform. We've gone into payments now. And then last year, we started going to small business lending. So we really have kind of grown with our customers and the offering that we give them, and then in the type of some of the type of customers that we have. And I think with the, um, with the pandemic and credit markets uh, shrinking and less people giving credit, I think we'll probably have another shift right now, maybe more upmarket, maybe different types of loans, different types of partners that we can get uh, as well. And I think that, uh, you know, we're positioned because of our technology to, to be quite flexible there. So you've kind of mentioned the products that you offer. I think dive a little bit deeper on that. So you offer uh, loans that are mm-hmm. based on data that's typically not relied upon for banks, for example, right? Yeah. Um, but can you tell us about all the products that you have? Yeah, so actually, let me just touch on that data point. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people, when you mention, let's say, let's call it alternative data, they, they talk about social media or something that uh, maybe is very far removed from traditional credit analysis. I think we use data that intuitively is connected to traditional data, but it's alternative in that it's not used directly for analysis. So, uh, you know, when you start in a market like, uh, like Colombia, where there's not much experience, so it's uh, 45 million people in total and 8 million people with credit cards on the consumer side. Uh, so a lot of the people are excluded from traditional credit products. 
So when you start on that basis, you have people with that much experience and that could be a factor for them maybe not understanding, not having discipline, not you know, uh, having the, the practice in going with credit. So it's best to start with them on kind of shorter commitments and smaller risk and then grow with them. So we have kind of a, a graduating model. So our, our product is a revolving credit line. So that once we approve them and for retention, you know, you give them that revolver for an extended period of time, but they have to pay it back in either 30 to 90 days. So it functions like a virtual credit card, but it's cash that's sent to their account. And uh, we've added a lot of bells and whistles to that. So we started selling insurance. We started you know, selling top-ups and uh, we're testing bill payments as well. We're trying to find a good provider there. Uh, so that, that's on the consumer side. On the small business side, we have kind of working capital loans. We have kind of long-term CapEx loans. We're quite opportunistic there. So we're jumping around, uh, leveraging partnerships with large companies to give it access to, to data that's not being used, transaction data or some kind of relationship data that exists to fill in the, the, the formality gap that exists in the small businesses. But you know, our, our expertise is more on the kind of the shorter term credits for both consumer and, uh, and small business. We're trying to go towards more on the payment side as, as we evolve. Has it become easier to obtain customer data over time? Yes. Let's say last year, one of the most important databases came online. We were the first company to use it, which is social security information. So that one, I don't know how many markets have it. So typically you're verifying employment status and salary you know, in a, in a letter, which is hard to verify. Here we can go directly to the database and get 12 months of data. We can, you know, on the, on the business side, you could look at stability of the payroll, the size of the payroll and uh, lateness and payment and so forth. On the consumer side, you get to see, I mean, exactly all the movements they have, uh, you know, dating back for a year. That came online last year and it's become, you know, very quickly one of the stronger weighted variables uh, in, uh, in our scoring system. That's exciting. And so let's talk a little bit about the COVID crisis. Obviously, the whole world is being impacted, some countries more than others. But this is also a time where fintech companies, particularly startups, are using it to actually enhance their value proposition, right? How, how is this playing out in Colombia? Yeah, so I think um, if you are truly digital, truly online, then that's definitely one clear advantage with the kind of the social distancing that exists uh, all over the world. If you do have claim to have a data-driven model that's kind of can evolve more quickly, can react more quickly, and if you do have a platform that you can make tweaks instantly, then you should be able to navigate these waters better. So it doesn't mean that you're going to do better than we did pre-pandemic, but it means that we can probably intelligently navigate these waters. So we can take risks. So a lot of Traditional guys maybe will shut up shop and, and wait it out. We can grow intelligently, maybe having higher hurdle rates for origination and be more wary and maybe you know have some kind of sector-specific policies. But I think the transparency that we have through our platform enables us to kind of uh, see things instantly, react instantly, and make, make changes instantly as well. So uh, I think it has... You know, magnified the advantages of having a model like ours. And I think companies similar to ours will feel that too. And what happened with the government is that 
banks all over, over the world are being used to push liquidity into the markets, but in, in, in emerging markets where there's significant percentage of the population that are excluded from traditional banking system, they have to look for other channels. And we were very lucky that we had access, we had channels with the government. So they asked us, you know, to look at, you know, first project was looking at independent workers. Uh, which made up 25% of our uh, portfolio historically anyway. So we had comfort assessing them and to see if we could develop a product quickly to roll it out. So we uh, rolled out uh, the product in two weeks, just a landing page, and then started processing loans in the third week. You know, the government has done a fantastic job, you know, marketing us and getting clients there. And it was very important milestone for us to to kind of be selected for this program. So it, it is open to all fintechs, but I think but we were the fastest to be able to roll out. So I think we're currently the only ones in the market uh, doing it. And then we're now approaching, you know, another area to look to finance payrolls for small businesses. Uh, so both those programs, what makes them interesting is the government is giving guarantees uh, to kind of mitigate the uncertainty that exists in the coming months, you know, while we're going through the quarantine. Uh, so it, it kind of showed off like our kind of speed to market with a new product and our comfort in taking risks in these kind of uncertain times. Sounds like it's almost a, a case study example of how this crisis has accelerated some timelines and has actually nudged governments or regulators in, in a more flexible direction. Yeah, no, I think uh, we are, you funny say case study, so I've told uh, the guys in the team that start taking notes because I, I do want to write about this uh, later because we'll see how it works out in the end. We're still, you know, only kind of uh, three, four weeks in, but uh, hopefully it'll be a success story and then uh, we can look back and say uh, this was uh, an important time for us. We'll make sure our words and professors notice. <laughs> <laughs> Good, and so can you talk a little bit more about how do you envision the future of uh, Zenobe? Yeah, so an important, another important milestone that we had this year is that we kind of was our first venture outside of Colombia. And it was also a validation of our technology capabilities. So we were approached by a very large leasing company in Mexico, very traditional 25-year-old company that was looking to either do something in-house or partner with a fintech to, to kind of develop a more digital solution uh, for the market. And we had kind of connections with them through previous work, through our investors and through myself. Uh, so kind of it, it went quite smoothly. And we contributed our technology platform and know-how there. They computed the capital, which I think is the model that I like for the future. You know, that uh, I want to leverage what we're good at, which is, you know, user experience, retention, risk assessment, uh, product development in general, uh, and then partner with somebody who has maybe a large client base, uh, you know, uh, deep pockets, uh, so that we can get the best of both worlds. So uh, that's a model that we we just kind of formalized at the beginning of the year. We're about to kind of roll out loans coming up, but that for me is the direction I want to go in. So instead of being, you know, the balance sheet, which is not you know, where our strength lies to focus more on our skills in kind of in technology and risk. So I think on the traditional business, as I mentioned, you know, keep expanding that offering, keep expanding the touch points, try and keep off offering more products and services for our clients and partnering with other companies that maybe they could fill in the holes. So I could maybe maintain the relationship and have a marketplace for different products. So uh, that way I can uh, keep the, the client as long as, I, as long as I can. So instead of, you know, historically having only one product to sell them and they would stay with me for three years, 
uh, I can keep that longer, increase the revenue that I have uh, in, in whatever time they, they stay with me and then move towards, you know, more increase the kind of the, um, the weighting of payments. So it's not only credit. And then look for partnerships. I think we're trying to replicate the same partnership we have in Mexico and Colombia. We're talking to a couple of players there as well. Uh, so reducing the focus on credit risk, on balance sheets, moving more towards technology or SaaS or white label or kind of partnerships. Those are kind of opportunities that I'm exploring right now. You know, being in the market, you know, since 2012, we've dispersed over, you know, 1.3 million loans coming up to 1.4. Uh, so our platform, our risk uh, uh, assessment is validated. So now it's sellable. So I think going into this uh, partnership model, it's better than being kind of a pure play software development uh, company where they have to kind of take a leap of faith to us. We were actually put money in the market. We've made money and we've grown and we've retained clients. So we can kind of offer that uh, validated proposition to, to a lot of people. It sounds like you also benefit as the fintech environment in the region becomes more established. Yes, yes. I think, you know, starting out, you know, when there was all that skepticism, now, you know, we have a industry association. We have partnerships with banks and uh, international partnerships now and government partnerships. So uh, I think it's much easier and it's opened a lot of people's minds of what's possible. So I think people have more trust in us and uh, people also... Can, can see a, a partnership as more viable. Absolutely. So we have a lot of listeners on the podcast who are either entrepreneurs or they're operators of fintech startups. Do you have any advice for our audience? I mean, I think the standard advice, I think is still relevant about the resiliency, about, uh, you know, that you can't uh, convince anybody of anything that you, you know, you should not kind of waste your time on those opportunities. But let me, let me kind of stay in, something more for emerging markets that's maybe more specific to it. So I think, let's say one lesson that, that we found here is that in Colombia, you know, which was separated from, you know, from Brazil or Mexico, maybe there isn't as much institutional investor activity. So we're very fortunate. We're, we're backed by QD investors. I've been, I think, on the Wharton podcast, uh, I think a couple of other partners have been on. So they spotted us and they're specialists in credit. So it was a good validation for us and uh, very fortunate to have them. But Apart from that, let's say if you're in a country that's not on the radar uh, as much, I think the utilization of family offices and local investors, particularly in businesses like ours when we are looking for partnerships. So if you go with you know, uh, wealthy families, wealthy local families, firstly, they have a much longer term vision and uh, they can open a lot of doors for you that, that the VCs maybe in the States can, but, but they, they can't so much here. And then maybe a, a twist on the that you can't convince anybody of anything. I think in the beginning, there was a lot of frustration telling people about how good Columbia was, the opportunity that, you know, that the information available is very good, the PIM behavior is very good. And, you know, if you, if you adjust, you know, default from Mexico to here and with the information we have, you know, and the lack of competition, I could have a bigger company here than there and with better performance. You know, I, I was spending a lot of my time trying to convince people of Colombia. And I think that's, again, where that you can't convince anybody of anything. <laughs> Maxim is relevant that I think uh, if somebody doesn't have your sector or your country on their radar, uh, then it's best to kind of move on and not, uh, not waste too much time on that. I think that was one lesson that I learned that I thought the ideas were quite compelling, but it is still very hard, you know, to change people's thinking on, on a particular topic. 
And I think that you need to think of the future. Let's say if you are in a lending business, so where you have access to bank lines, access to securitization, access to you know, different types of funds and, and different more developed markets, you have to think where you're going to go, where you're going to end up, and how you're going to fund yourself and how you're going to compete. So you can't look at a business where you have the same basic model that's overseas and think you can apply it here without looking in the future. Because yes, you can find you know, pockets for 5, 10 million, maybe 20 million, uh, but then you'll be capped. So you have to really think about the sustainability and, and long-term, where's the business going and, and how you're going to fund yourself and how you're going to compete uh, and so forth. So it's not every model is translatable and initial success doesn't translate to long-term success as well. That's fantastic. Well, Tarek, before we let you go, we have one more question that we like to ask all of our guests and it's about your personal hobbies. So what are your, some of your favorite hobbies and you know, what are some of the things that you enjoy outside of work? So with my uh, Egyptian heritage, it is squash. I'm not as good as the typical Egyptian, but, but it, it is one of my passions here. Uh, I do have a family, so I spend a lot of time with uh, my two daughters, and we just have a new puppy, a baby Rottweiler. So uh, a lot of time at home, you know, pre-quarantine. I know quarantine uh, has forced everybody to stay at home. I, I like sports in general, so if it's not uh, squash, it's tennis, it's uh, working out running. I entered the Tough Mudder last year. We were planning to do some um, triathlons this year, but that's, that's, uh, that's a little bit on hold. I think it's important to kind of push yourself outside to kind of free your mind. I think when I travel, when I work out, that's really when I, I get to kind of separate myself from day to day and, and, and think of kind of more long-term uh, issues that the company has, some strategies and partnerships and so forth. So I think it's very important, you know, to separate, you know, for quite a few hours and to push yourself as well to, uh, uh, to get that inspiration. Fantastic. Well, again, Tarek, thank you so much for joining us on the Words and Fintech podcast. I think you're the first uh, entrepreneur from Colombia to join us. So that's fantastic. And Great. <laughs> Post-quarantine, you're always welcome to stop by on campus. Perfect. Now, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our Fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.